This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about solutions for folks that have tax or other government debts. Uh, learning some key facts about options to manage government debts like outstanding taxes and student loans. Dealing with that unima- unmanageable balance on the government debt like overdue taxes or lo- student loans presents some pretty big challenges compared to other consumer debts. But Blair's going to highlight some of the key facts that we can be aware of in dealing with government debt and what options we have to get partial or even full debt forgiveness. Blair, in your work as a licensed insolvency trustee, there must be some common types of government debts that you keep seeing uh, week after week that people are, are trying to deal with and you can give them some help with. Oh, certainly, Elaine. And, you know, it's not everybody that comes in the door owes CRA, but the majority of people that are self-employed, you know, when you're running your own business and things get tough, you know, it's often amounts owing to CRA can suddenly become the last to get paid. So it's quite a, you know, a strong proportion of the client base that comes in that does have some tax debt. Um, But what's really good for people to know is tax debt is a debt like any other and that it does have a solution. It can be dealt with uh, working with a licensed insolvency trustee. So the most common types of debts that we see, they're generally under the umbrella of Canada Revenue Agency, and CRA um, does collect for a number of different government programs. But the main categories are things like personal income taxes, which is relatively straightforward. You file your taxes, there's a balance owing, you're unable to clear that um, by by the deadline in the year owed. Um, GST debt from your business. Um, this can often be quite significant because, you know, 5% of your sales, you should be holding in trust and sending back to the government. But oftentimes when things get tough, um, that can be one of the first things that can stop happening. Um, student loans, whether it's a national student loan or a provincial student loan, um, CRA often handles the collections for those as well. Um, medical services plan, so MSP, which we all know here in BC, although it stopped in January of 2020, if there was a balance owing, that balance was not written off and CRA could be collecting for that you know, at, at present now. And owing CRA money, I don't need to tell anybody who's owed CRA money, it's not something you'd want, it's not a situation you'd want to be in because CRA does have very strong collection powers, which we'll talk about, but they also charge compounding daily interest on unpaid latest balances owing. Um, and if you just decide not to file your tax return because because you know you owe them money, um, that can be even worse because when you do eventually file, um, they're going to hit you with late filing penalties and they might even double those penalties if it's not your first time filing a return late. So generally, CRA has a lot of recourse, a lot of ability uh, to make things challenging. uh, But again, there is hope you can deal with a tax debt. And I want to throw in, I haven't told this story for a very long time, Blair, but even if you're dealing with somebody's estate and you think, oh, well, CRA can't possibly want to go after me because I'm looking after my mother's affairs or, or whatever, uh, they do. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of leeway. It's like, you owe this money. It's compounding interest as we speak. You need to get this paid ASAP. Uh, it was quite a surprise to me. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in some cases, you'll find, you know, it's- 
depending on the day and the person, they can be very reasonable or others. They're not too interested in circumstances. This is the obligation that has to be met. And if you're administering on behalf of someone else, you could be liable if you haven't done things correctly. So it, totally. it can be a very challenging situation for sure. Yeah. Even though lots of other people will bend over backwards because, you know, you're dealing with an estate of, uh, you know, a parent or whatever. Yeah. Man, off, CRA yeah. doesn't always care. <laughs> Any, just yeah. a little word of advice. Okay. So what are some of the other kinds of challenges that come up for people dealing with these types of debts, Blair? Well, for any of our regular listeners, they would know, you know, we often say not all debts are created equal. Um, you know, the dollar is a dollar and theoretically in what you owe, but certain creditors do have extra powers and certain different parameters. So the first off with tax debt is you have to know there's no limitation period on tax debt. It doesn't expire. It doesn't go away. You can't wait out CRA uh, whenever you're, you know, if you leave the country, when you come back, that that's still going to be there. So it's not the case as it would be with a consumer debt, you know, a MasterCard or a Visa. You could say, okay, for two years, I'm just going to wait and see, are these people going to sue me? And if two years goes by and they haven't sued me, the debt is now beyond the limitations period. Nothing like that happens with tax debt. So it is something, you know, it's pay now or pay later. And usually it's a whole lot better to face it earlier on before it's compounded and, and increased due to penalties and other things like that. Uh, but the second part of that is so the debt doesn't go away. But as I alluded to earlier, the means that CRA has to collect on that debt uh, is enhanced beyond any other creditor. So way more power than the banks, the payday loan companies or anything. Um, CRA has the right to proceed with very severe collection actions virtually overnight. Uh, most common creditors, so again, a bank or a credit card company, they have to apply to court, hire a lawyer, spend a bunch of costs, give you notice of everything. With CRA, all of those steps can be skipped. You don't even have to know, get, receive any notice that your wages might be taken on your paycheck of next week or that your house might have a charge registered against it. CRA can do those things with very little notice towards you. Now, that's not their default. Usually, they're going to start trying to work with you, having good communication. But if you go silent, you could expect perhaps that some of these significant collection activities could happen against you. Uh, what CRA can also do, with, which other creditors can't, so again, a typical bank or credit card company, they can go to you know, your HR department and start to get your wages if they've sued you. But let's say you're self-employed, there's not much a typical credit credit card company could do even if they've sued you and you're self-employed. With CRA, they can go direct to your clients and say any money that your clients owe you has to be paid directly to CRA. That's called a requirement to pay and essentially that chokes a business's revenue source, uh, right? revenue off at the source and often puts people out of business. So that's very drastic. Um, they can also garnish or seize pension and EI benefits. So CPP and OAS, you may have heard that can never be taken to pay debt. Well, it can't be taken for consumer debt, but the government can decide they're not going to pay you anything unless you start to pay them some money, which I've seen before. Uh, they can start to intercept rental or lease income from your tenants. Uh, they can even start to seize things from your bank account, uh, put charges on your home against investment proceeds. So there's a lot of things things uh, CRA can do that other creditors just don't have the power to do. So that really speaks to the good idea to, if you're in this situation, to take some action with a licensed insolvency trustee and, and get this handled, or at least start the process to get it handled. And Sands and Associates is the place to go. The number 1-800-661-3030 or their website, sands-trustee.com. Uh, if you or someone you know is struggling with owing the government money, that's the very best step that you can take is uh, talk to a licensed insolvency trustee at Sands & Associates. Um, Blair, can you take us... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, Elena, and what's, what's really important about that, too, is if you do take action early, you can essentially forestall or stop CRA from being able to take any of these extreme remedies against you. So when I mentioned, you know, they can seize your bank account or freeze your bank account, uh, we sometimes have people running through our doors. Okay, CRA has frozen my bank account. We're saying, okay, this is their first step. What they might do next is they might put a charge against your house, for example. So let's start to take some action now so we can stop that from happening, because if yeah. they put a charge against your house, it's just like another mortgage being on title. It's not a mortgage they're going to require you to pay um, or to you know to, to make regular payments against. Um, but when it's time for you to sell your home or if you try to refinance your mortgage, CRA is going to get paid out before you receive any funds. So it is important you take action uh, to deal with the CRA debt before they've started to put charges against title or started to freeze your bank accounts. Some things can be undone, but it's always better to do it before they've taken that action against you. Okay. So since we're right there, what are some of the kinds of options that, that somebody could take uh, to resolve this debt issue and that you can help them take to resolve their debt? Yeah, well, first off, it's for people to understand they do have options because a lot of the times, even today, uh, people come in and they'll tell me about all of their debts and it's almost towards the end of the meeting. They'll say, oh, yeah, I've also got this tax debt. But I know you guys can't help with that. So at least dealing with the other debt, I'll be able, better able to pay the taxes. It's not that case at all. There are means to eliminate, to reduce, to negotiate, um, to get out of government debt, essentially, for what you can afford to repay. It's not meant to be a life sentence when you owe the government money. Uh, there's two remedies you can work with a licensed insolvency trustee to implement. Uh, they're essentially the only two remedies short of taking the government to court or having, you know, very long acrimonious fights with them, um, trying to get the debt, um, you know, if you say it's, it's not a valid debt, but if it is a valid debt, there's two ways you can deal with it. One is to do a consumer proposal and a consumer proposal it would consolidate all of your debt, uh, put it together into a single monthly payment and give you a monthly payment you could afford that's usually based on repaying a portion of the debt. So it could be as low as 15 or 20 cents on the dollar. It could be as high as 80 or 90 cents on the dollar. It really depends on the circumstances, but often it is a significant reduction. And if the tax debt is so severe, it could be, I've seen hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars, you know, doing a proposal to pay back a percentage of that just might not be possible. But filing for bankruptcy, if you're unable to make a consumer proposal, bankruptcy is your other option. And depending on your circumstances, it could be over in as little as nine months for someone who's never been bankrupt before and is low income, uh, their bankruptcy could finish in as little as nine months. So sometimes people go from thinking there's no solution at all to this tax debt, it's going to be around my neck for the rest of my life to, oh my gosh, I could be free of this in nine months or if I choose to do a repayment plan, it could take a little bit longer, but I avoid the bankruptcy. So people should have hope as dark as it can seem in the moment when CRA is threatening or has already seized assets or income, you can recover by doing either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. Okay. And again, the only people that are going to be able to do that with you and for you is a licensed insolvency trustee. Now, we've got a, a, just about two minutes left. Blair, do you want to talk about... Um, uh, and I think this is a really good question, and I don't know if we've covered this question before, but does getting debt forgiveness on uh, through bankruptcy or consumer proposal uh, I, from government debt, does it impact a person's ability to access uh, government benefits later once it's all looked after? Like, how does that work? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, really good question, Elaine. Um, and the answer is no, it doesn't impact your ability. So you can still be eligible and apply for student loans, for EI benefits, emergency benefits, housing benefits, pensions, and more uh, following a government debt being included or written off as part of your bankruptcy or consumer proposal. Sometimes people are reluctant. They'll say, well, if I write off this government debt, are they just going to cut off my pension for the rest of my life? Absolutely not. I've never seen that happen. It will not happen. So uh, just because you deal with your government debt shouldn't cost compromise your ability to have government support in the future. And just very finally here, I know we're down to the last about minute or so, but a lot of people are calling us about CERB overpayment. So ah. the emergency response benefit, uh, if you were not entitled to it or you were or whatever, and government's asking for money back, it has now been clarified. Absolutely. That is a debt a trustee can assist with. So if you've got a CERB overpayment, speak to a licensed insolvency trustee. It can be dealt with as part of either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. We're starting to see more and more of those and people are very scared but to us it's just any other debt and the government has said they don't intend to try to keep this outside of the insolvency system it is part of debts that people can get a fresh start on if they need to okay and again a licensed insolvency trustee is going to be the only one that's going to be able to help you with this and come up with a strategy and take this on and get to that debt-free position uh Sands and Associates, their website is so good. It's got so much good information, so many questions and really good answers, thoughtful answers, easy to understand answers. Uh, Sands-trustee.com is the website, or you can just give them a call and get that appointment, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about risky debt cycles. And this is going to be an interesting uh, segment because we're specifically talking about payday loans and the amount of risk th that's out there uh, around payday loans. Uh, it's so interesting because it, when, when it comes to alternative borrowing, lots of debt experts caution payday loans are among the riskiest types of debts to have. And, and yet they seem, Blair, that they're so much more available than they ever were before. Uh, the, the offices and the places that you can go to, to, uh, do payday loans, um, are considerable, right? I mean, it seems like it's a growing industry to me. Oh, yes, Elaine. There's, there's just tons, whether it's brick and mortar, um, places popping up all the time, you know, some very you know, large national banners, some, you know, very small regional, maybe just a single location or two. Uh, even online, you can find, you know, payday lenders these days. So it's, it's very easy to get into the into this type of debt. Um, and payday loans are typically, they're a special type of debt. It's usually your last resort. So it's, it's what you go to yeah. when, you know, typically you've been turned down for a bunch of other types of debt that, you know, might have better terms. Uh, and the big challenge with payday loans uh, is that they're very addictive. So I've said before, there's a crack cocaine of borrowing. Um, you, you get one, you need a second, you need a third. I see people with 10 to 15 different payday loans moving money around crazily each month just trying to keep all the balls in the air. Uh, so the challenges are the interest rate is so high, all the costs and the fees, that often when you have one, you need to take out a second or a third to actually pay off the cost of just that first loan, and it creates a vicious cycle. So it's very, as you said, risky financing, and I'm really happy today we're going to delve into a bunch, um, you know, the numbers, the structure, how these work, uh, and hopefully give people some good insights that will help them try to avoid using this type of financing. Okay, well, let's let's start with the actual payday loan, how it's set up uh, and how and how it works. How, why is it, you know, how it becomes so risky for the borrower? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a payday loan, so it's offered, you know, usually physically in store, but now online, and it's by privately owned companies. 
So this isn't, um, you know, your large banks, typically. It's not a government organization. It's a private organization that just starts off to offer payday loans. And they are subject to provincial regulations. So it's a short-term loan. And the regulations state you can borrow up to $1,500. Um, the objective is a payday loan. It's meant to cover a cash shortfall for a short period. So the idea is, like the name, it's in between your paydays. You're going to pay it off in your next paycheck. Uh, and in BC, that's up to $1,500. You've got up to 62 days to pay your payday loan back. So it's not supposed to be long-term financing. Uh, and if you don't repay your payday loan, plus the interest and the fees, you face even more interest and fees. So what about an installment loan? Is that the next piece that we want to talk about in relation to this? Because how is yeah, that different? Well, that's important for people to know. The payday lenders started off a number of years ago, and they were just payday loans. They were just the $1,500, pay it back in up to 60 days, and that was their, their bread and butter. Now, what I've seen in the last couple of years especially is just an explosion in what's called installment loans with all the big payday lenders doing this, uh, and it's typically for an amount larger than that of a payday loan. It can be much larger. I've seen ten, fifteen thousand, 15000 even $20,000 uh, installment loans, and although the cost is usually lower than that of a payday loan, they still can be very, very expensive, um, much more expensive than other costs of borrowing. Um, and just in terms of who uses payday loans, you know, it's the vast majority of Canadians luckily don't need to resort to payday loans, but there's up to 2% of Canadians uh, in recent surveys that said they're habitual payday loan borrowers. Um, and what's interesting is how this changes amongst vulnerable groups. So for low-income households, it's doubled its 4% incidence. For Indigenous peoples, it's doubled again to 8% incidence. Uh, and for single parents, 8% of single parents have used payday loans in the past year, according to a recent survey. So it can be people really at the edges of our financial system who really have a tough time accessing financing anywhere else who are, who are being hit with the highest cost financing, unfortunately. And that's the cycle that you're talking about. You owe money. You can't get out of it. You've got to borrow more, more money to pay and, and on and on and on and on it goes. That's exactly right. So look, can we talk about some of the charges? Like, do you actually know what, what these companies are charging these days? And, and, and then talk about why this type of borrowing uh, has such a high cost. Yes, indeed. And I'm really happy to give some concrete numbers because I think the way that payday loans are often marketed, it's not that clear that the interest rate is so high. So, you know, first off, you need to understand even accessing the money you've borrowed can sometimes have additional costs. So some payday lenders might ask you to take your loan via a prepaid card and they charge you extra cost to activate it and use the card. So setting that aside, which I think is just quite distasteful, but I'm sure there's some objective of saying, well, this is easy access, but I don't just give the cash is my opinion. But putting that aside, that aside, let's talk about the borrowing cost. So each province and territory has some different rules and restrictions. But in BC, the maximum fee for borrowing a two-week $100 loan is $15. Okay, so it doesn't sound like a lot. And that's what you see off advertised all the time is a loan is $100, uh, sorry, $15 on $100. Uh, okay, sounds high, but... Uh, if you think the maximum legal interest rate in Canada is 60%, so in the criminal code of Canada, there can be no interest rates charged higher than 60%. A credit card is usually in the range of, you know, 12, maybe to 19 to 29%, somewhere in that range. If you actually do the math on a two-week payday loan, that's $15 on 100, that's 400% interest. So six times higher, six and a half times higher than the maximum allowed by law is what you're actually paying on a small payday loan and maybe $15 doesn't sound so bad 
But if you actually look through an example, and this is provided by the government of BC, they're actively trying to encourage people to look at all of their options before they borrow from a payday lender. If you borrow $300 with a payday loan, within 14 days, you're paying back $345. And as we've calculated, you know, that's about 391% interest, so quite high. Um, if you actually used a line of credit, and let's say the line of credit had a $5 admin fee and a 7% rate, instead of $345, you're at $305, so about one-ninth the interest charge. Uh, if you used your overdraft, so sometimes people are just scared of you know approaching their bank for an overdraft or want to stay out of it all the time, it might be a $5 fee and maybe 19% interest, so you're at $307, still a whole lot less than $345 for a payday loan. And even a credit card, if you had to do this, which you definitely don't recommend, but if you had to borrow on your credit card, let's say there's a small fee of 5 bucks to access the funds and a 21% interest rate, you're still at $307. So the very expensive credit card cash advance is going to cost you about 7 bucks. The payday loan is still going to cost you $45. So it's so significant, so much more expensive than other sources of financing. It's easy to see how that can be a cycle that you're paying back the second loan and then you're left short because you paid all this high interest. So you need another loan and then you pay that back and you need a further loan. So again, the cycle of payday loans is something I see just about every day. And it's just the whole idea of just don't start with one because it's very difficult to just end with one. And I totally understand what you're saying when you, when you, when you give the other examples in terms of a line of credit or overdraft protection. The average person just doesn't even think about those things because it's a bank oriented thing. I would, I would think that's why I, I wouldn't think of that. I think, oh, well, the guy's on the corner. He, there's his store or he sent me an email or whatever. That's got to be easier than having to go to a bank and ask that question. Well, and that's what the, the niche is, the, the value to the payday lender industry is this is providing access to credit to those who might be underbanked, so to speak, or don't have a great relationship with their bank, or maybe don't even have a, a bank account in some cases. Um, so, you know, a payday lender is going to give you access to funds, but it's at such a significant cost that we really encourage people to explore every other alternative first. Um, you know, even if your payday loan is because you're going to be late for your rent, it might be worth talking to your landlord. And, you know, if you do it in the right, respectful way and have a good plan that you could execute on, you might have saved yourself all of that hassle and just you know pay the rent a little bit late that month uh, you do need to understand that you have rights when you take out a payday loan so if you've just signed one recently and are concerned about it you've got two full business days where you can cancel the loan and not pay any penalties uh, and you always have the right to repay the loan early without paying any additional penalties so those are a couple of your outs there uh, but a lot of people again they're, they're just trapped in that cycle at the high cost I want to mention, too, uh, if you're in this situation and you want to take some action, go see somebody from Sands & Associates. Go see Blair, uh, and they have offices all over the province. Uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the website, or is the phone number, and the website address is sands-trustee.com. And just get some good, free information on steps to take, and maybe they can give you a hand with this. So beyond the expense of basic costs, there are some areas uh, of caution that you think it's really important for people to know about when it comes to this time, this kind of borrowing, Blair. Yeah, a couple of things to highlight right off the top is be very careful with online payday lenders. So a lot of them aren't licensed. Uh, they will not follow provincial rules or may not um, in your jurisdiction. So the things we talked about, the two-day right to cancel and pay things off early, if you're borrowing from an online lender, that could be tough to get them held accountable to D.C. law. And if they're located outside of Canada, it could be just impossible to have anything you know judicially set in Canada that's going to be binding on them. So just be very careful if it's an online lender. Um, also be careful 
that sometimes what you think you're doing online, applying for a loan, uh, you're actually just giving your money to what's called a lead generation website. So you put in all your information, what you're looking for, uh, and then they're not going to actually give you the loan, but they're going to sell your information to a bunch of other providers who then might start following up with you with unsolicited offers, calls, maybe even harassment, uh, where you end up with not the best deal, but just the one that, you know, kind of screamed the loudest in your in your ear uh, and made you just want, you want them to go away. Uh, you need to be careful, too, about upfront fees. So it's illegal for a company to request that you pay an upfront fee to obtain your loan. Um, so the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, um, they actually said this on, on their website, and I quote it, uh, is don't fall for promises that you'll get a loan regardless of your credit problems. If you have poor credit or haven't established good credit history yet, it's unlikely that anyone will lend you money without charging large fees. So the whole idea of it seems too good to be true, you know, great loans, low rates, no credit, doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, generally, it is too good to be true, uh, and you'll be cautious about that. And, you know, finally, you can always check with Consumer Protection BC to verify if a payday lender actually holds a license in the province. So if you do end up needing to take this step to take a payday loan, at least make sure they're licensed so that you do have some recourse through Consumer Protection BC. We've just got about a minute left, Blair, and I know this is a large question for a short amount of time, but what are some of the other real warning signs that might signal it's time for somebody to get some good advice and to get out of this cycle? I mean, is it even possible? It feels pretty dire. No, it's absolutely possible to get out of this cycle. I think, you know, a big warning sign, if you're habitually using payday loans, that's probably the number one warning sign. It means if something is not going according to plan, if you're always paying, you know, close to this 400% interest rate on some funds, uh, you should sit down with a professional to figure out, well, what's the root cause of this? Is it because all of your other debts are so high, you're not left with enough money to get yourself by, and you have to resort to payday loans to, to fill the gap? Um, you know, that's a big warning sign, just even having a single payday loan, let alone three, four, five or more. If you're carrying multiple, you definitely should be phoning us up, have a chat, and we'll, we'll try to get, get it to a point where you don't need to use payday loans. But the biggest warning signs that we see just in general is if you're stuck in a cycle of just making minimum payments on your debts. So you've got some debts, they don't seem to go down each each month, but you make all your money to minimum payments and you can't do any more than that. That's when you need some advice from a licensed insolvency trustee to stop that cycle, to freeze the interest, to get you out of debt, and you can get back in control of your life. I'll give you the website one more time, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Set up that first consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about one of the options, one of the strategies that Sands & Associates uses a great deal with its clients. It's a consumer proposal. And we've got, look, we're going to answer all your questions about a consumer proposal, how it works and why it works, and, and learning about the cost of the consumer proposal. It's a debt consolidation, as well as you want to look for the red flags, what to be looking out for when you go through this process. Um, Blair's going to explain what you can expect cost-wise when doing a consumer proposal. Blair, do you want to start with just outlining some of the basic points about them, just in case somebody hasn't heard about it, and how the whole process works? Oh, certainly. I often say a consumer proposal is the most powerful debt solution that you may never have heard of. And, you know, we've been trying to, to publicize the term for quite some time, but still a lot of people that come in to see us, they're just, um, you know, shocked that this option exists and they wonder why no one told them about it before. So for anybody listening, this might be some really good information you can share with others who are in a tough spot. They might think this is just the solution they need. What a consumer proposal is, it's a debt consolidation solution that has great advantages over traditional debt consolidation. And what we normally 
generally mean when we say debt consolidation is that you go and you get a loan, you pay off all of your other debt, um, but you're still paying the debt back in full, but maybe at a lower interest rate. What a consumer proposal is, is it's all the debts together with a single payment, but you don't pay any interest. Literally zero interest is, is charged on top of the debt. And what's even more powerful is the debt is reduced down to the amount that you can actually afford to repay. So your total debt could be cut by 50%, by up to 80%. I've seen both higher and lower amounts of that, but it's often a significant reduction. And creditors agree to forgive the unpaid balance and consider the debts paid as full. And people often ask, well, why would they agree to that? Why wouldn't they want full payment? And the reason is when you file a consumer proposal through a licensed insolvency trustee, we have to do a report on that proposal explaining to the people you owe money to, if they don't accept this proposal, you might choose to file for bankruptcy. And in every situation, bankruptcy is going to end up with a worse outcome for them. They'll end up with less money. The win-win here is you don't want to file the bankruptcy. That's your win is getting to do the proposal. And the win to your creditors is they're actually going to get some money back on their debt as opposed to potentially zero if you filed for bankruptcy. Um, So when you do a consumer proposal, you've got a legal process. It's got built-in consumer safeguards and some resources along the way. Um, You get the lowest monthly payment of all consolidation options available because if you compare this to, you know, getting a consolidation loan or working with a credit counselor, for example, you're paying back 100% of the principal, whereas in a consumer proposal, you're paying back generally a fraction of it. It's often quite a bit less than 100%. Uh, what's very powerful too, and this doesn't exist with other means of debt consolidation, just with a consumer proposal, is you get automatic protection from your creditors. So even government creditors like Canada Revenue Agency, they can't opt out of a proposal. They can't start seizing assets. They can't even call you uh, or threaten you with anything. If the proposal is in force, you've got that protection for as long as the proposal is in force. Uh, and then finally, during the proposal, you get one-on-one personal financial counseling with a qualified counselor at least twice during the proposal. You'll have those sessions. We'll talk to you about rebuilding your credit, about putting all of, all of this behind you and moving forward with really good financial habits. Uh, final point is just on eligibility for a consumer proposal. You have to owe more than $1,000 and less than $250,000, not counting your mortgage or a car loan. Um, and if you've got two people, let's say a couple that are working on their debts together, everything is doubled. So it can be up to $500,000 of debt you can deal with in a consumer proposal. So it's very flexible, very powerful option. Uh, In some ways, it can sound too good to be true, but it is true. Um, And you might never have heard of it because really only trustees are folks who are telling people about this option. Many times the people that you owe money to would be quite happy for you to just continue to make the minimum payments or pay off a very high consolidation loan, whereas a proposal might be your better option. And I just want to throw in here, too, only a licensed insolvency trustee in Canada can facilitate a consumer proposal for you. So uh, nobody else can promise this. Nobody else can do this for you except for a licensed insolvency trustee. If you already know that this is the step you want to take or you want to find out more, you want to sit down and talk with somebody, uh, making an appointment is very easy to do with uh, Sands & Associates. They've got offices all over British Columbia. This is the phone number, one 800 661-3030. The website, if you want to check out, uh, start there. You can certainly do that at sands-trustee.com. So, Blair, let's talk about the costs involved and the charges. What can people expect to pay for services and other incidentals? Because sometimes they come up for in different ways and and depending on how you decide to handle it. uh, If you're moving forward with uh, filing a consumer proposal. 
Yeah, that's such an important question, Elaine, and you, you made a great point that only a licensed insolvency trustee can file a consumer proposal. So really, that's the only person you should be dealing with. So you don't need to have a referral. You don't need to go through um, any sort of special advisor. So if someone is telling you, you know, hey, to do a consumer proposal, you need to pay a bunch of upfront fees. Odds are you're not dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee. You're dealing with someone who's going to charge you some fees to eventually introduce you to a licensed insolvency trustee, which you don't need to pay a penny to do so. So from our point of view, it should never cost you anything to find out what options are available to you. So when you sit down with us at Sands and Associates, we'll go through your entire situation. We'll give you some general debt advice, answer your questions. We'll do a professional assessment of your personal financial situation, explain to you how all the options can work, uh, and give you a calculation of what a consumer proposal consolidation might look like uh, compared to other options. Um, in a consumer proposal, you've asked me, well, what fees do you have to pay above and beyond you know, what you're able to repay on your debt? So if it's determined that you, know, you can afford to repay 30% of your debts, for example, what are you charged on top of that? And Elaine, this is an, an answer I'm so happy to get. The answer is zero. So in a consumer proposal, whatever you can afford to repay on your debts is what you repay. There are costs to the proceeding, and they're all set by a government tariff, but essentially they're paid by your creditors. You're not asked to pay anything extra beyond what you can afford to repay. So, for example, if you were doing a consumer proposal for $300 over 36 months, so paying back you know close to $10,000-ish on perhaps $30,000 of debt, all you're going to pay each month is the $300 payment. Your creditors are going to get the majority of that. Some of it will be kept by the trustee for cost of administration. But you pay nothing to start the proposal, nothing to meet with the trustee. When you sign the documents, you don't make any upfront payments. All you start to do is to make that minimum monthly payment, of, in this case, the $300, and everything is included from there in the fees. And I know that you talked about some of the key differences between a consumer proposal and, and other types of, of debt repayment programs. Are there some that you want to make sure that we include in this segment, Blair? Yeah, I think there's one in particular to, to focus on, um, and that's an idea of a not-for-profit credit counseling plan, because I see that advertised very heavily. I know others do, too. Uh, and it can sound a lot like a consumer proposal, because what a not-for-profit credit counselor will offer is what's called a debt management plan, where they say, we'll consolidate all your debt together, and we'll freeze the interest, and isn't that great? And if you didn't know about a proposal, you'd say, well, that is great. I don't have to pay any interest and I get to pay things off. Don't have to go into bankruptcy. That's amazing. But when you compare that to a consumer proposal, a couple of really important differences. So first off, in a consumer proposal, you're only paying back what you can afford to repay. And it's usually significantly less than the full amount. So if someone can offer 25 cents on the dollar in a consumer proposal, but they'd have to pay 100 cents on the dollar because a credit counselor can't legally reduce your debts, you know, obviously that person would be better off. Their house household budget would be a lot better off by pursuing a consumer proposal. So a consumer proposal is often a much lower cost option than working with a not-for-profit credit counselor. But what's even more important too is just the power of the tool. So when you're doing a consumer proposal, it's legally sanctioned. You have all protection from creditors. Nobody can opt out at any point. Uh, if you're dealing with a credit counselor, uh, there's none of that legal sanction. This is just an informal arrangement with each of the people that you owe money to. They could opt out. They could decide to sue you separately. And if you owe any money to the government, whether it's for student loans, income taxes, or anything like that, it can't be dealt with at all by a credit counselor. So it might not solve your entire problem. You might end up paying too much, and your credit is going to be roughly the same as if you did a proposal as opposed to working with a credit counselor. So definitely encourage everybody to investigate all options, uh, but in, in most cases, the consumer proposal is by far the better option. 
And of course, again, I'll just repeat it as we end this segment, uh, a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one that can negotiate, organize, put in place a consumer proposal for you to be able to move forward cleanly and, and have everything looked after properly and legally. Uh, so again, that's why I can't say enough good things about Sands and Associates. They're easy to get a hold of. Their phone number is 1-800-661-3030. Or you can go to their website, uh, take a look at it, sign up there as well, get your appointment through the website at sands-trustee.com. Understanding interest rates and why they matter. And this is such a good topic, Blur, because I think, you know, it's one of those things, if you pay attention or listening to news, regular newscasts, daily newscasts, often uh, they're talking about interest rates and the good news and the bad news and what's happening. And I kind of go, you know, it's easy to have your eyes glaze over when you hear it. So we're going to learn some key facts about interest rates and how they can impact you and your debt. And as you said, as we talked about this segment, so much demands our attention these days. It's no wonder we tune out when we hear interest rates and other economic news, because it's like, oh, what now or what else? Uh, but Interest rates can have an immediate effect on the average consumer. So we're going to, Blair's going to break down the basics that we should all know about interest rates, how they can impact you, your debt, and what you can do about it. So Blair, can we start with just figuring out and you telling us what the Bank of Canada's interest rate means, the thing that we hear about? What is it, every month, every week? It seems like it's constant that there's changes or the possibility of changes. Yeah, it's definitely. There's a lot in pop culture right now about, you know, interest rates and inflation. Um, and generally, you know, interest rates are used to control inflation. So if we're in a situation where inflation is very high, which is exactly our situation now, uh, usually the lever uh, that the Bank of Canada will use is to raise interest rates to kind of cool down the economy, you know, get a handle on inflation and bring things back to a target range. Uh, but in terms of what is the Bank of Canada, let's just start at the basics here. Well, the Bank of Canada is Canada's central bank. So it's a special type of crown corporation. It belongs to the federal government, and its mandate is to regulate credit and currency in the best interest of the economic life of the nation, and the primary role is to promote the economic and financial welfare of Canada. So a successful economy, low inflation, stability, that's all what they're going for, and monetary policy is at the core of their functions, and the two levers that they use for that um, is inflation control target and the key policy rate. So inflation, as we just alluded to, that's what, you know, prices go up over time. And we're at what I've heard is about a 30-year high now. You know, we we're very low inflation for periods of time. But year over year, we're seeing inflation much higher in the past. And the Bank of Canada wants to maintain a stable price environment with low, predictable, stable, you know, uh, repeatable uh, levels of inflation at a very low band. Um, and when that happens, there's no change to consumer behavior, but it's when inflation is high, uh, people tend to you know, either start to buy things quickly or more slowly. They spend time forecasting inflation. The whole economy can go a little bit out of whack. So for us as consumers, the Bank of Canada is going to try to get inflation under control. And what they're going to do to get inflation under control is to adjust their interest rate, their price of money, which directly cascades through the entire financial system system uh, into banks, into mortgage rates, into interest on savings and deposits. So their lever at the high level of the Canadian economy does impact each of us individually. Okay, so it does it does impact us. If, if not in the moment, it does eventually because everybody follows it. All the institutions follow that and then base their rates on what the uh, on what the bank is doing, what the Bank of Canada rate is doing. 
Exactly, Elaine. So when the Bank of Canada adjusts their rate that they charge the banks, pretty well instantly the banks start to adjust their rates that they charge the consumers. So if you've heard of prime rate, you know that's the rate that the banks tend to charge their best customers. That tends to move very closely with the Bank of Canada's uh, in Bank of Canada's interest rate. And that in turn affects mortgage rates for the average consumer. Um, and I guess interest on our savings and et cetera too, right? Whatever the bank's looking after for us. Exactly. Yeah. Now, interest on savings, you know, what it's going to be from a tenth of 1% to 11th of 1%. Don't know. It tends not to, to move too much for a consumer's benefit, but to a consumer's um, downside, it absolutely can increase the cost of borrowing in various products. So if we think about a mortgage, the type of impact that's going to be most severe um, is to individuals who are carrying variable rate mortgages. And that's exactly what it sounds like. A variable rate mortgage means that as the interest rate changes, uh, the mortgage can change as well. So the payments can increase or the amount of money that's being paid towards the principal can decrease and more goes towards interest. Uh, as the Bank of Canada rate moves up, variable mortgages tend to move in lockstep with that. They're usually primed either at some discount or some premium uh, to the prime rate and that just moves in lockstep again with the Bank of Canada. And just a very small interest rate hike can actually be very impactful. So if someone had a variable mortgage of just 2 to 3%, which is very much in the range of what people have been signing these past few years, interest rates going up by just one percent that can be a 50 percent difference in the amount of interest per year that that mortgage is going to have to be costing what about the uh, staying with staying with home ownership uh the home equity loans or lines of credit what kind of impact does it have uh on those on those products yeah, well, so on mortgages, there's a variable product and there's a fixed mortgage. So if you're in a fixed mortgage, you're generally not going to, to have any immediate impact of an interest rate change because, again, just by the title, it's a fixed rate. When you have to renew, it will be different. From a home equity line of credit, just about every home equity line of credit I've ever seen is structured as a variable rate product. So what it means is there's a direct and immediate impact of an interest rate increase because your payments are going to go up. A lot of home equity line of credits people do is either just interest only or with a small amount going to principal. So directly, if they're just paying interest only, if the Bank of Canada rate has increased you know, by 50% in a year, maybe it's went from 2 to 3%, you could expect their line of credit payments are going to have that same type of an increase, which can put some pressure on a household budget. And I would think that anything to do with vehicle financing, that would follow suit as well. That's going to get impacted. Well, it, it depends. Most vehicle loans are structured with a fixed interest rate, so it's not a direct relationship. There are some that are structured as variable, but often, even if it's with a variable rate, um, it doesn't increase your payments. It, they just increase the time that you're going to be making payments to calculate for the extra interest. But the majority of vehicle loans that I've seen, you know your, your rate right up front. It's locked okay. in, and this isn't going to have any impact on you. And that would be the same for student loans as well for those folks? Well, again, it depends on whether it's fixed or variable, and I've seen both. Um, oh. Many student loans I've seen are variable, so it is quite often, you know, the interest rate is going to be prime, again, plus or minus a certain amount. So if your student financing is using variable rates, perhaps the interest rate and the minimum payment could increase. If it's on a fixed rate, there might not be an increase there. Okay, I didn't, I didn't think that there would be uh, differences between institutions and or how student loans are structured. That's interesting. That's super interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it could credit... be private versus government. There's a number of different sure. ways. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about credit card balances? How are they impacted by the interest rate? I mean, we pay an exorbitant interest rate already mm -hmm. with a credit card. Does that mean that it stays the same or does it automatically go up? 
Well, you hit the nail on the head there, Elaine. We say we're already so far divorced from, from the prime rate. You know, again, we've been talking mortgage rates at, you know, 2 or 3%. Most credit cards are 20 to 30%. So I don't think banks are as cheeky to say, well, you know, it's went up by 0.5%. We're going to go to 20.5%. Um, I've never seen that. You know, perhaps on a long-term basis, if we're talking about, you know, very high interest rates, we could see perhaps new credit card rates would increase. But at this point, they're so significantly above what the prime rates are anyway, that small movements in the Bank of Canada rate, we don't think they're going to have any impact in your typical credit card rates. Like, again, you're still probably 19 to 29 or even 39%, so far removed from the 2 or 3% of the Bank of Canada rates. Now, is there anything that we can do about it? How, you know, the negative impact that it has on us? Is there, do we have any, I, I feel like we don't have any options. There's nothing that we can really do. Well, there's some options. There's nothing we can do to control, right? We won't be able to control inflation. We won't be able to control the Bank of Canada, but we can control, obviously, how we react to things, how we structure ourselves. Uh, and probably a lot of the discussion you've heard in the last while, if you're a homeowner, is fixed versus variable. You know, should you be locking in your mortgage at this time? And as you go back and do a historical study, you know, the last 40 years, everyone has been better off to stay variable. But, you know, there's an element of risk there in a variable rate mortgage in an environment now where we know interest rates are going up. Uh, I would definitely encourage somebody if they don't have a whole lot of extra room in their budget now and they're on a variable rate mortgage, definitely be looking towards what are my options to lock into a fixed term so you can get some certainty on that payment and not have to default on the mortgage if things continue to escalate with interest rates. You've been listening to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. He's a licensed insolvency trustee. Sands & Associates helps you get out of debt. Check out their website at sands-trustee.com. You can also give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.